What did you have for breakfast? What did you have for breakfast? Avocado toast. Yeah, smart. Very New York, though. Is it? Are they eating that in Paris now? Avocado toast? Is it Not big? really. No, no. They no. are still under the croissant cafe. Pain pa- chocolat. Yeah. Very traditional in France. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Pascal Roger, a French pianist who specializes in the French classical piano repertoire. He has recorded the preludes of Claude Debussy three times over his long career, and I caught up with him at New York City's Steinway Hall where he was recording them for a fourth time, here for the Steinway & Sons Spirio, the world's finest high-resolution player piano. To learn more, visit steinway.com slash spirio. Bonjour, Pascal. Bonjour. Merci bien. Merci. You just said something that I'd like to dive right into. I asked you how many times you had recorded the WC Preludes, which you're here to do today for the Steinway & Sons Spirio, world's finest high-resolution player piano. And you said you can always play WC differently. It's never the same twice. Exactly. Now, while I imagine that that is also certainly true for a lot of great composers, it seems like to you... It holds especially true for Debussy. I wonder if you could speak to us about that. Well, you're right by saying that the music should always be different. Not a single interpretation is worth repeating it. I believe that every single interpretation is an inspiration of the moment, based, of course, on a lot of work and a lot of thinking. But at the moment you perform, you should just let your imagination and your emotions free. And you're never twice the same. You're never the same person or the same feelings or the same thinking twice. So that's why music is so fascinating, because it allows you to transmit your emotion at the moment you play. And they are to be different. But with WC, there's many other reasons why it's so different. It's all the magical sound effect that you can produce with Debussy. I mean, every single chord, every single harmony has something mysterious. And depending on the piano, on the acoustic, on you, you make it sound different. And you have, Debussy gave you, gave me the possibility to find different colors every time. Because those harmonies are so rich and so mysterious that you can always treat them differently, and they will sound differently. And also, the timing with Debussy is always very flexible. As a marking tempo, he always says, très souple, tempo rubato. He never says, this is the tempo. Yeah. Quarter note equals 144. No, yeah. no, never. And that gives you an extra freedom. I've played those pieces so many times, and now they are inside me. And I don't really have to think about how should I play them or what is in the score. It's already part of myself. And I can just let my emotions and my expression, and it will come out differently. 
Debussy's music is so avant-garde even today. Some of it sounds proverbially as though it could have been written yesterday. Harmonically, structurally, and a bit, as you say, with these mysterious sounds, he's, he's at the edge of extended technique uh, mm. before there was a John Cage yeah, exactly. and that sort mm. of stuff. Let's take a couple of those ways in which he remains avant-garde. And I would say the first was his evolution of not developing ideas mm. in the Beethoven sense <laughs> of things, mm. it, which is to say he would present them and not feel the need to carve them up eight different ways. No, it's true. The music of Debussy seems without structure, but actually it's not. There is a structure, there is a construction behind, but it's hidden. The frame is very vague, but there is a frame. And Debussy music is not just aléatoire. I mean, there is really a construction, but it's not the main subject. It's more about finding new harmonies, new colors, new sound. I think he was he revolutionary completely the, the way of writing music in general, but particularly for the piano. Creating the piano as a painter. I mean, you have to be a painter when you play Debussy. You have to have colors in your mind. Uh, I know it's a very obvious thing to say that if you play Debussy, you have to see Monet, Renoir, Cézanne. You know, it's 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 a reflection of what the painters did. He did it with the sound. They did it with color. Debussy said that he didn't want to be stamped as an impressionistic composer. But the reason he said that that Debussy was a free mind, he didn't want to belong to any school or any category. So at the time, the Impressionist painters at his time were kind of categorized in a sort of very special group. They were also revolutionary in the, the art of painting. But Debussy wanted to be on his side, himself, free. But if you take any of the titles of the preludes, if you take Des Pas sur la Neige, if you take Voile, if you take Brouillard, how more impressionistic is that? And Brouillard, you can see, what is Brouillard? Fog. So it's Monet, and you can see the, the, the sky of Monet and all those brushes and that create something that I'm always fascinated when I look to a picture of Monet or all those impressionistic. If you look very close, the distance they were painting, the distance of the arm, you don't see anything. It looks completely, what is that? It doesn't mean anything. And then you go back, and then you say, ah, oh, yes, I can see that. But what is the aural equivalent of that? We're speaking about impressionistic painting. You seem more comfortable with the term than Debussy. Yes, I am, absolutely. Okay. So, so what is it that translates musically from impressionism, right. from the visual movement of impressionism? Can I give a sound example? Of course, please. So I'm going to play the first bar of a very impressionistic piece for me called Poisson d'Or, Golden Fish. Okay. And I will play it as a painter would see a close look on the, on the picture, very close. So anybody would look very close. So that would sound like that if I only play what is written. Okay. Okay. See any goldfish? Do you see the the color of everything? You know, okay. Part two. Okay, now.
you see it. It's exactly the same notes. But the way I play them, I transform them into colors, into water. And that's why the interpreter becomes creator. Because Debussy wrote what I played first. But of course Debussy had in his mind something else. But he didn't write it. So if you play exactly what is written, it will sound like nothing. And most of the pieces by Debussy are like this. So you have to put your imagination and try to imagine what Debussy had in his imagination, or maybe something different. doesn't matter. doesn't have to be the same thing. There is one prelude by Debussy called Voile in French. Voile in French means two things, either sails or veils. We don't know. He didn't say. So that's our, hmm, which one? And on purpose, he put the titles of each prelude at the end. Right, you know that. Because he said, I don't want this to be a program music. I just want you to give you a hint of what I, what I imagine. An impression, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we come back to impressionism. <laughs> So I would have loved to have a conversation with Debussy about Impressionism, but I'm sure that his, his rejection of the word Impressionistic means the, the social meaning of it, but not the artistic meaning. Let's speak technically the difference between what you played the first time and what you played the second time. The second time was a bit of half-pedaling. Of course. And this, to, to connect it to a visual Impressionism, is a softening of what we're hearing, a creating yeah. of atmosphere and ambience mm. and almost the water in which those exactly. fish are swimming. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that if Debussy had lived later, he would have used much more the aléatoire music, mm. but it was not yet there. The education of Debussy was very traditional, conservative, and, uh, the conservatory in Paris. Of course, he was already a rebel. And he, he didn't like all those rules, but still he learned them, and they were in, inside himself. I always said Debussy was a revolutionary musician, artist, composer, but he didn't break the rules. He just went further. And, uh, somebody like Schoenberg broke the rules and created all the Created rules. his own. Other, yeah. <laughs> Debussy didn't. Yeah. He used yeah, the normal writing. And he said also something very important. Normal that, writing, which is to say... Bar lines, tonal. Notes, tonal. I mean, even if the tone goes a little mm -hmm. uh, there, there is no break. Right. If you think of Forêt, if you think of Ravel, right. if you think of 
Chausson, all those composers, they, they are around. Debussy went further okay. than any of those. But he was not somebody that said, okay, I reject what was done before, now I do Debussy. No. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to go further in harmonies and creation of color. But he also said something very important. The most important thing is the pleasure you have. And that's something that a few composers forgot later on. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and I think that's why there's still... For some of these composers who will go unnamed, there is still this boundary between audience. Yeah, I think so. Because they are speaking to the mind. They are speaking to the intellect. Mm -hmm. Say, I think you know, music should be there. No, Debussy is heart. There's nothing else. Pleasure. Uh, all, even if he had a, a brain and he was conceiving his own music, it was mainly emotions. And that's what touches the audience. have a lot of experience in Debussy and you also have a lot of experience playing the French pianistic repertoire more generally. Mm, yeah. And you are a Frenchman playing this music. So here's a question for you. Being French, does it give you a special insight or entree into this music? Well, it's a difficult question because uh, I, I don't want to restrict there have been, and there will be, and there is great interpreters of French music who are not French. It's obvious. But the, many students ask me that question. Do we have to be French you know, to understand the music? I said, no. But you have to know France. You have to be aware of the culture. You have to read. You have to be in France. You have to look at the countryside. You have to drink wine. You have to walk in the country. You have to see the painters. You have to get into that culture. You cannot be completely strange to the French literature, poetry, or, or landscape, wine, food, and so on, and play French music. Because those composers were completely influenced by all those, and they were part of it. It's just a matter of opening your mind and being fed by the French culture, the French literature, the French paintings. So, and then you will be able to assimilate. I was born with it. So, of course, I had an advantage. Because before I was 10, I already went to France and I already saw pictures and I already read and I, I was born in it. And I had teachers also that knew Debussy. Marguerite Long, she said, Descartes, those people could tell me, here Debussy told me. Ah, that's, a, that's a privilege. All of that means that French music is my language. I always say that anybody can speak many languages, but we all have a mother tongue. 
and that's my mother tongue. Mm-hmm. So I feel more comfortable with them because I, I was born with it. Hunayk had a very nice quote about French music. He said, well, Schumann, Brahms, Beethoven are gods. Corey, Chabrier, Debussy are friends. I deal better with friends than with gods. Is their music somehow more accessible? Yes, not more accessible, but more... It's uh, not Bach trying to no. call down the voice of God. It's, it's more human. Mm-hmm. It's more simple. I always say something that once a conductor didn't agree with me, had a big discussion, I said to him, there is nothing like deep French music. He said, God, how can you say that? Oh, because everything is French music has something that goes and maybe moves you, but it's not dealing with gods and with the meaning of life and what you know, it's no no. It's just simple emotion that and it's short pieces and it doesn't have a universal meaning. It's, it's a simple music, but it comes from the heart. Let's talk about the preludes. Because that's what you're in here today yeah. and tomorrow to record. You're very familiar with these pieces, obviously, having recorded them. Uh, and played them. And played them for decades, right? <laughs> that's right. So what's the preparation now? When you sit down to, whether it's to play a prelude and recital or to do a recording, I guess I'm wondering, you've explained a little bit with your example of the goldfish there. But what are the priorities that you're looking to transmit when performing a Debussy prelude? can be very different, again, depending on the, the piano and the acoustic. Uh, you were asking something interesting. I was saying, what is the preparation? Mm-hmm. At my stage, as you said, I've played those pieces forever. I don't need a preparation, technically. It's hit me. I can play them in the middle of the night uh, anywhere. So usually the only thing I do is to try the piano and the acoustic. But just a few minutes, just to feel how the piano is responding to my playing. And then, if the piano, at most of the time, responds well and so, I stop. I don't need to practice of course, at home, I practice some memory, check a few things. But once I'm there, the day of a concert, I just will leave my imagination open because why would I practice something that has to be spontaneous? I trust myself to be able to be concentrated and ready at the moment where I play. I will give the best of what I can do. But without preparation, it's on the moment. And I take inspiration from the piano itself. That's one of the reasons why it's never twice the same, because the piano is never the same. It gives me information. It gives me inspiration. Ah, you can do that. Ah, okay, maybe I can do that differently because the piano responds differently. And that's why it's so fascinating, because it's a creativity on each moment. You don't arrive on stage and say, okay, this is going to be that way, and that's it. No, I never know. That's something you can do with Debussy. I am not able to do that with Beethoven. Maybe some people can. Maybe some people who were born in... You're not able to do what specifically with Beethoven? That kind of spontaneous interpretation. Mm -hmm. Because for me, again, I'm talking with God, so I cannot say anything (laughs) to God. I have to know a little bit what I'm going to say and the 
structure, and there is such an important structure in a Beethoven sonata. You cannot ignore it. That's part of your interpretation. So for me, there is less freedom. I can play Beethoven. I used to. I don't anymore because I think now it's the same language. But I used to. Any pianist can play anything. But I had to really restrict myself and think how it should, should be, and that's the construction, the phrasing, the everything. Else. And I felt that I had less freedom in my interpretation because I often say, Debussy, I cannot go wrong. It sounds pretentious, but it's not because, as I said, if you speak your own language, you won't go wrong. You won't say a wrong word. You might say the wrong phrase, if you do, but... For me, I can leave myself completely free and play Debussy, and I know I'm not going to betray him. If I do that with Beethoven or Schubert, I might go bizarre, and uh, Schubert will say, hey, hey, what's that? (laughs) We're talking about applying Impressionism and the necessity of doing so to get Mm -hmm. the full Debussy experience, as you demonstrated. And if I just think of a, a vast swath of interpretations where, let's say I have... Thibaut Day on one end, playing very impressionistically. And then I have uh, Pierre-Laurent Aymar on the other end, playing almost as though he were playing Bach or Beethoven, mm-hmm. right? Is that part of the challenge of playing Debussy, is trying to figure out how much to blur and how much to bring into focus? Yeah, the blur is very important because Debussy wrote a lot of notes very often, but you don't. You're not supposed to hear all those notes. That's why I often say to the. How do you know that? Students, How do you know that? Looking at a score, what you're supposed to hear, uh, which notes take priority? Well, if there is a melody, it's easy. But very often the melodies with Debussy are hidden. Uh, it's not a melody composer. It's more harmonic and colors. So you first have to. I think harmony is the key point. What harmony did he want to? create what notes he used and what sometimes there is just a tiny little change uh, a flat to a natural oh interesting and Debussy has a very interesting marking way of because sometimes he put accents on one chord and you're not going to do that mm-hmm. it's piano accent yeah. why yeah. because there is a little bit change of harmony. Yeah, and or just a, of a, a bit of a tenuto. Yeah, yeah, something that do something. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and there is nothing in the musical markings that can say do something. Mm. I always regret that. There is no, I don't know, like a like red circle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, do something. I mean, yeah. you don't hear that, that harmony I found is magic. Mm. Yes, it is. So do something. I mean, okay. Make them realize over there that it's magic. That's what I, how I teach Debussy. So, so why do you think there is a piano here and another one here? It's the same dynamic. What is he repeated? Because, the, did you notice, the harmony is different. So he doesn't want you to change the dynamic, but he wants you to realize that, ah, something's happening. Mm. And that you have to read through the, the marking. Rabel, same. They, they, they put accents, different markings on harmonies because... For me, it's obvious. I don't need to see that marking. I feel that, wow, it's such a beautiful harmony. I'm sure that when they composed it, they were very proud, yeah. very happy. Said, wow, yeah. so beautiful. I hope that the, the, the piano will do something with it. So he, he says, you know, an accent. And on Ravel, there is something very interesting. There is a Ravel chord. Okay, what's the Ravel chord? Typical chord. Okay. 
I learned that when I was a student in Paris Conservatory, and my harmony teacher told me, if you like Ravel that much, because at that time I was more Ravel and Debussy, mm-hmm. if you like Ravel that much, you have to know that there is a, a Ravel chord that is very important, and that is in every single piece by Ravel, that chord is there. Okay. So you have to remember. Okay, so how? Okay. Said so, L'Enfant et les Sortilèges, you know, the, the opera by mm-hmm. Ravel, the last two chords, the last two words of the child, it's Maman. And we all know that the mother of Ravel was the most important woman in, in his whole life. And on Maman, he put that chord twice. Every single piece of Ravel you have. I could play hundreds of examples. That chord is his chord. And every time you see it, the, just what I played from the sonatine, on that very chord there is a mezzo forte, expressivo, accent. Three markings on one chord. As a two note slur. Ba-da. So yeah. it means that, that almost every time that chord happens, there is a, a change of dynamic. I'm surprised that I never read about that. I'm hearing it now in Menuet Antique. That's yes. what I'm thinking, right? Yeah. Da-dum, da-dum. Now the beginning, exactly. One day, if I'm really stuck in somewhere, nothing to do, I will count. <laughs> Number. I, I counted in the Menuet of the Sonatine of Ravel 16 times Mamo. in a two minutes piece. Mamo. So it's not a coincidence. <laughs> so, though for those. It's his th- signature, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It is. So for him, for he put Maman on those two chords. I mean, it's so clear. Mm. So when my teacher told me, I thought, wow. No. And since then, I all noticed the, the, that chord. And Debussy is more complex because there are so many Debussy chords. Mm-hmm. There are some. But they are less, they're more mysterious. And there's a Debussy tonality. There's that whole tone aesthetic that we've come to associate with him. Yes. Fairly or unfairly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But Debussy is more about colors. Mm-hmm. Ravel, less. Ravel, uh, of course, you have to use colors when you play any French music, but it's less impressionistic. Ravel has a link with the 18th century music. I mean, Tombeau de Couperin, the Vals Noble Sentimental, mm-hmm. all those were referring to uh, Baroque music. I mean, the second movement of his piano concerto, he was referring to Mozart. He's more attached to that. Uh, Debussy was really going forward with less... Yeah, there's a living nostalgia to Ravel's throwback music yes. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Ravel was really in love with the Baroque French music. Yeah. His writing is more classical than Debussy. So what drew you to Ravel initially, and then why did you, I won't say abandon him, but, no, 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 no. but Debussy became your focus? Well, at that time, my teacher said, I understand your passion for Ravel, but later you will understand that Debussy is more important. I don't consider Debussy more important, because Ravel is still my very close to my heart. But I must say that the harmonies of Debussy put me in another dimension. I mean, I can follow him further. I mean, it's the creativity 
the invention, imagination is more challenged by Debussy than by Ravel. I mean, might be the reason why I'm so close to Debussy now, because I believe that freedom and imagination is the most important thing in, in music, in interpretation. Debussy gives me that, and I'm so thankful because he gave me the, the liberty that almost no other composers gave me. But at the same time, uh, he gave me the pleasure, physical pleasure of his harmony and his music. of Debussy, which is so different from the sound of Ravel, because even the use of the technique is different. Most of the pieces by Ravel are written with the two hands here. Yeah, okay. Try yeah. the beginning of the concerto, Rondine, Scarbo, Sonatine, Tombeau de Coupe. And for our listeners, he's indicating hands over each other, over... Almost a very short, like, yeah. you know, using only two, yeah. two, 20 centimeters of the keyboard. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But Debussy is, is, is all 88, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Debussy is this, all the time, because he wants to use the clarity, that's why I always say to the students, use the darkness of the left hand, and use the clarity of the right hand. Do you think orchestrally, when you're playing the preludes, do you, do you have an orchestra in mind, or are you always at the piano no, as an instrument? No, I stay with the piano, because I consider, it's very rude to say that for me, but I consider Debussy not as a great orchestrator. Ravel was the greatest orchestrator. Ever. Sure. And I read recently a, a phrase by Ravel which made me laugh. He said, Yeah, La Mer, Debussy. Yeah. If I had time, I would reorchestrate it, and that would be a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's well, a bit look at from his, Ravel. His, what he did with Mazorsky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Ravel was the genius of orchestrator. Debussy, I'm not many conductors say the same thing, that they have more difficulties balancing the sound. Debussy than they have with Ravel. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that using orchestral images for Debussy it helps. It's so pianistic. It's so well written for the piano. It's so he thought of the piano all the time. It's not like other composers you can apply orchestra, even Beethoven or Brahms, you can think of orchestra as the sound, but not with Debussy. It's really a pure, purely pianistic music. How has your relationship changed over the decades to this material? Or has it? It's changing every day. Yeah. I mean, I'm usually not really willing to re-record something. Because uh -huh. I think, I mean, they've been asking me to re-record the complete Ravel many times. I said no. Because I, the one I did in 78, it's still available. 
I still listened to it and I said, I don't think I can do better. You think that was a high watermark for your Ravel? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer to your question. Why is that the Debussy became more close to you? Because when I listened to my first version of the Preludes, I don't deny it, but I said, I can do other way. Mm-hmm. And that's why I did it three times. Otherwise, I wouldn't. That speaks to the strength of the material too, right? Yes. If, if there's so many ways in that you can record it three times and feel like you still have something to say. Yeah, exactly. That's a, good, that's a well-written piece. Yeah. <laughs> Pascal, merci. Uh, ça me fait plaisir. Oh, de, it was a great pleasure. Uh, Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Thank you. Uh, Vous avez écouté Soundboard, le podcast Steinway Sons sur l'art et l'artisanat. Nous avons entendu des extraits de l'artiste Steinway Pascal Roger interprétant les préludes de Debussy, Danseuse des Delphes, Voile, Des pas sur la neige et La fille aux cheveux de long, le tout sur Onyx. Nous avons entendu l'artiste Steinway Jean-Yves Thibaudet jouer Manuette Antique de Ravel sur Deca. Notre musique d'introduction est la course folle de Philippe Glass réalisée sur un Steinway Model M par moi, Benjamin Finan, rédacteur en chef de ListenMusicCulture.com. Notre musique outro est le prélude La Cathédrale Engloutie, interprétée par Pascal Roger sur Onyx. Les questions pour le podcast peuvent être envoyées à info sur Steinway.com avec le sujet Soundboard. Merci de votre attention.